Hello, this is Richard E. Simmons at the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. Today I'm talking about life's great treasure. I hope you enjoy it. All right, let me pray. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy, uh, just your compassion on us. We, we thank you. Are, you are a God who forgives. Uh, Lord, we just acknowledge our need for you. Uh, we ask that you be here in our presence, that you'd speak into our lives, that you'd teach us your ways, uh, that you'd use this study in, in, in each of our lives this morning. Uh, we do thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Kind of interesting, yesterday, we probably had uh, 12 guys here. This was pretty interesting. And uh, I couldn't get a word out of them. You know, it was one of these groups. Everybody was just dead silent. And uh, uh, Buddy? Buddy was sitting right there. Didn't say a word. Um, no, they didn't. I didn't. Everybody knew. Everybody seemed to know. That's right. But... Um, it was interesting, so I thought, oh, maybe I just didn't connect well with these guys. And then I had a guy who, who was here, and he said, the last, this lesson spoke more to me than any lesson you've ever taught. You know, when, when Jesus uh, speaks everything he says, I think everything that's recorded in the Scripture, in the Gospels, is significant. But uh, as you know, there are times he'll say something, and, and you kind of got to perk up and listen to what he's saying, because you know it's, 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 it's very significant. And to me... You'll see from time to time, Christ will say, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he'll say something. Usually, it's a parable. In fact, the last six or eight months, we've looked at a number of parables, and we're going to look at two short back-to-back parables. I've never taught on these. Um, but was intrigued by them. I did. We did read one of them, but I we didn't. I didn't teach on it. We we read the second one when we finished up the, the series on contentment. But I want to look at both of these. I want to compare and contrast them, and then I want to kind of dig into the first one today, and then with the next one next week. Um, so if you would turn to Matthew thirteen. And we're going to look at verses 44 to 46. Greg Pyburn, would you read for us? Sure. Matthew 13, 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, either someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value and wed. Okay. Let me ask you this. I, what I'd like to do now is just stop and ask you to look at and compare these two parables um, and look at what is similar about them and what's different about the two. What's similar? Do you see any similarities? There's one glaring one. They sold everything. Each of them come upon something of great value, and it was of such great value they were willing to sell everything they had to get it. Anything else? What about differences? He hid it. In the first one and the second one, he didn't. Now, you let me just say this. You want, wouldn't know this, but I, mean, I, I read a number of commentaries on this. And that word hidden also means concealed or buried. 
It was something that was not obvious. It was hidden from sight. But the pearl merchant was seeking pearls and probably found this other pearl, this pearl of great value, with another pearl merchant. So it was not hidden. Now this, this might be a stretch, but in reading the commentaries, um, if the treasure was buried, the guy was likely plow, plowing the field. You see, that's what they were. He didn't own the field, but he was probably plowing in the field because that's what sometimes farmers would do. They wouldn't own the land. They'd rent it, and they'd, they'd, they'd plow it up and, and grow crops on it, but they didn't own it. But the pearl merchant, so in all likelihood, and again, you can you got to be careful. You can read too much into a parable. But this made, was, was, a, was a man who was not of great means versus a pearl merchant. Pearl merchants who lived back then were wealthy people. They had to have great wealth to basically to buy their inventory of pearls. You know, they didn't have diamonds. You know, a pearl was something of just of unbelievable value. But the real question is, as you look at these two little simple parables, you know, what's it all about? What was Jesus trying to get at? What was he trying to teach us? Well, let's start with the first one, the first parable. And we need to start by saying, this is, you know, you read this, you think, that's kind of far-fetched. It's really not. You see, back then, they did not have nice, secure banks with, with these nice, secure vaults. And so often wealthy people would carry their gold and silver in various places. And, say, and if they died suddenly, and they never told anybody, it's lost until somebody finds it. And in two different commentaries, they both said, in Jewish law, if you somehow stumble upon a hidden treasure and you don't know whose it is, it's yours. Now, I don't want to go into too many details because I, I, I want us to figure out what is Jesus really trying to tell us in this first parable? Now, this is a good, this is a good place to start and ask this question. And do you think after this event, and we don't know the amounts or anything like that, but do you think after this event, event this, it, 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 it impacted this man's life, this treasure impacted his life? For instance, let's say uh, he found this treasure, it was worth a million bucks, and he had to go scrape up $10,000 to buy the piece of land. Would you say it changed his life? Yeah. You see, that's the thing about, we need to understand about the gospel and the treasure of the gospel. You know, it's true spiritual treasure. And true spiritual treasure never, it just improves your life. It remakes you. It transforms you. And you'll never be the same. And I know that was true for me in my life. When I became a Christian, my life was never the same, never has been the same since. You see, it's not like the gospel is not like some self-help book that will improve your life and make you feel better. It changes the essence of who you are because it changes your heart and the Holy Spirit comes in and takes residence. Now, as you read the parable, wouldn't you agree that on the surface, this, this appears just to be an ordinary field? I mean, it's just a field. 
And what you see beneath the, basically what you see beneath the soil of this ordinary field is this incredible treasure. The treasure is beneath the surface. And the only way to find the treasure is to go beneath it. Listen to what one commentator said. He said, the Bible tells us over and over that Jesus often hides spiritual treasure under a field of ordinariness. And you will never find it unless you seek and penetrate the surface. And what I find is most people don't that. But if you think about this, this is a real problem with our world today. We're always looking on the surface of things. In fact, the culture that we live in seems to always assess value on the basis of externals and that which is superficial. Let me, let me give you an example. Let's, I need you to kind of think through this with me. <clears throat> Whenever you meet another man for the first time, how do you size them up? I mean, think about it. What is, what is the criteria that we use? And I was, as I was doing this, I was thinking back to my years in the insurance industry. And I remember uh, on a number of occasions, I had the opportunity to go these lavish, on these wonderful trips that insurance companies paid for. And often you'd take your wife, and you would go and you would be with, uh, with agents and brokers from all over the country who you've never met before. And it was interesting, you know, we would go and usually you'd sit at a table, there might be ten, uh, there might be five couples at a table. And you couldn't help but try to, you, you try to size up the people that you're with. Now when you meet somebody for the first time in a scenario like, what do you think, what is the criteria you use when you start to size up another person? What are some of the criteria? How, yeah, how they look. How they dress. What else? Oh, come on. Their wife. Their wife. I mean, seriously. You know, they got, a, they got a trophy wife. What else? I'm not sure I'd say that outside this room. Well, we can say it in this room. I mean. How they talk. How, yeah, how, they, how articulate are they? How intelligent are they? Where, where did you go to college? What else? I mean, there are all kind of things. Uh, you know, and I, uh, do you own your own business? Uh, you work for a, for, a, for a brokerage firm? Well, what's your title? What do you do? And then, you know, if you have a lot of time, where do you vacation? Where do you live? And you know what one of the biggies is? Your kids. How accomplished are your children? My son goes to Harvard Law School. That's one of the things. Where do your kids go to college? The que- this is a good question, guys. If that is the criteria that, that our world uses, and unfortunately that is it, this is a great question. How well do you do based on that criteria? How do you measure up? 
Because as I was thinking about this, I'm not so sure that I do so good based on the criteria. I mean, I'm old. I do. Alex sold me this shirt a couple of years ago. My, my shirt looks pretty good. You got to show your wife that. Yeah, I got you. You would you would like my wife. That's for sure. If you don't know her. But you know, I work for a nonprofit organization. You know, I drive a, a, a four-year-old car. Live over right over here in Homewood. I'm not sure how well I would do. How do you? How would you do? The problem, though, guys, with the criteria, it's all about the externals of life. And I think what is quite clear, outwardly, you can look great. But inwardly and relationally, you can be bankrupt. You may have a trophy wife, but have a horrible marriage. Conversely, when it comes to the externals, you might find somebody that just appears to be quite ordinary, but internally can be rock solid. And this is a big issue in the sight of God. Let me stop here. Comments, questions, anybody? Preacher, one thing that's not exactly on point, but what struck me about these two parables is they came upon the object of great value in different ways. Yes. And I think that, I take from that, that God comes to us not always the same way and not always in the same time. No doubt about it. That's a great point. I, I didn't even think about that. That's a great point. Yeah, he speaks to that in James too about showing partiality to yep. you know to those who appear to have more. Yeah, yeah, that's a bit. That's that's a that's a big issue in James. This is a big issue. Is look at it in a second. Anybody else? Do you remember? I'm not sure if we studied this. If we did, it's been a long time ago, and a lot of you guys probably weren't even here. Um, but in First Samuel 16. God basically has told Samuel, we're, we're going to have a new king because of basically all that Saul did in disobedience to God. <clears throat> and all God tells Samuel, very godly prophet, the new king is going to be one of Jesse's sons. And as I recall, they go to, <clears throat> Samuel goes to Jesse's house <clears throat> and Jesse marches out all of his sons. All of them except the youngest, David, who's out looking after the sheep. Somebody's got to look after the sheep. It might as well be the youngest. And the first person that kind of is, is presented to Samuel is the oldest son, Eliab. What do you remember about Eliab? Anybody remember? He was tall and good looking. He, he was a perfect specimen of humanity. He was in the SCA. Yeah, he was. <laughs> 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 and he, he is presented to Samuel, and Samuel, even the godly Samuel, looks at him and says, Surely this must be the Lord's anointed and then you know what God said to Samuel and, for, and this is a great verse it's 1 Samuel 16 7 
I've had my kids memorize it. So I think it's so significant. And God says to Samuel, don't look at this man's appearance. God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at what? He looks at the heart. What a great statement. And therefore I agree with that commentator who says, God often hides spiritual treasure under a field of ordinariness. In fact, I think God often works through ordinary people and not necessarily superstars. In fact, Paul pretty much says this about the Christians in the church at Corinth. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. While we're turning, anybody have a comment? Question? Yeah, you know, I think that's funny and that interesting that verse. You know, it says it says, Do not look at that the, his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Yeah. I've rejected yeah. 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 Uh, those are the things God rejects. Yeah, that's yeah. not something I am not impressed with that at all. Nor was Jesus, which we're going to get to in just a minute. That's the interesting part. All right, are we at 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. Warren Lightfoot, you want to read for us? I do. Good. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know, when you when you read the, the Bibles, you know, there, there, there are two or three primary, tra- what I call translations. You've got the New American Standard. You got the NIV, which most of us have one of those two. But then you got the, uh, the the New King James. Those are all translations, where the translators take the words in Greek and they literally translate it as as best you can into English. But then you have what's called a paraphrase, and all I mention this is the most famous paraphrase, where you more paraphrase it instead of translate it. And most people consider the, 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 Phillips trans, uh, the Phillips translation or the Phillips paraphrase as the, the best one. C.S. Lewis, in fact, uh, kind of read, read through it. Or this was back in the 50s and approved it. In fact, wrote the introduction to it. And I want to read to you Phillips translation or Phillips paraphrase of these verses that Warren just read. And you'll see that the Christians in Corinth were just pretty ordinary people. They weren't gifted It says, for look at your own calling as Christians, my brothers. You don't see among you many of the wise according to the world's judgment, nor many of the ruling class, nor many from the noblest families. But God has chosen what the world calls foolish to shame the wise. He's chosen what the world calls weak to shame the strong. He's chosen the things of little strength and small repute. Yes, even things which have no real existence 
to explode the pretensions of the things that are, that no man may boast in the presence of God. You know, a great example of all that we're talking about uh, was in the blog that I wrote right before Easter. And all of this was not in the blog. Uh, this is something that I wrote in the book that I wrote. This was from the book, Safe Passage. And it's about Tolstoy. Now, most people, Tolstoy lived into his 70s, and he hit it big when he was young. Uh, some of his greatest writings were done when he was young, so he was very wealthy. And he hung out with the, uh, the aristocrats of his town. But he lived with this incredible fear of death. And basically, he, saw, he found no hope in religion of any kind because he thought it was all foolish. It says, for many years of his adult life, he deeply pitied the Christians in his native Russia. How was it, he asked, that these miserable, impoverished peasants confronted death with peace and with dignity, content that their days should end and that they would be with their God? After many years in the comfort of his aristocratic surroundings, a world of ideas without purpose and privilege without consequence, Insulated from the hardships of poverty, physical stress, and psychological trauma, Tolstoy's pampered existence slowly began to unravel, and eventually he, con he contemplated ending his life in his own hands. However, his imagination and creative spirit took a radical turn. His life and perspective on death was completely transformed, and ironically, he began to find encouragement and optimism, and of all places the community of old, uneducated Christian peasants in his town, whom he now realized were wiser and more in touch with the realities of human existence than his educated, aristocratic friends. Tolstoy then turned to the New Testament. As he searched for the answer, he read the words of Jesus, and each page seemed to speak to him lucidly. Over time, by faith, Tolstoy embraced the love of Christ, and as he did, he tells us, that the dark, menacing figure of death was transformed into a bright promise of life. And these are his own words. He says, you know, for 35 years of my life, I was in the proper acceptation of the word a nihilist, not a revolutionary socialist, but a man who believed in nothing. Five years ago, my faith came to me. I believed in the doctrine of Jesus, and my whole life underwent a sudden transformation. Life and death ceased to be evil. Instead of despair, I tasted joy and happiness that death could not take away. You know, Tolstoy is saying, I found that great treasure. But where did he find it? Who had the impact on his life? These poor, uneducated peasants. These ordinary people who on the surface appear to be ordinary but within them internally had this great treasure that the gospel offers. Any comments on this? Yeah, the guy that I mentioned a while back that called me yesterday, that was the exact thing he said. He said, you know, the thing that, stroked, that really spoke to me even though I didn't mention it, was just the significance of humility. You know, it's, it, as, as Andrew Murray says about humility, it's the root of all the virtues. 
And, I mean, if you ask me if, 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 if there's one thing that you could possess, one trait that you could possess above all others, what would it be? And it would be humility. Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy, uh, in that letter, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be yeah, conceited. Yeah, yeah. Arrogant, uh, as much yeah. translation, but it's yeah. the opposite of humility. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. I bet you didn't find much of that humility at your insurance meetings. No, there wasn't. Everybody was trying to impress each other. Yeah. I mean, seriously. You know, you that that's a good point, Terry. You know, that's for the whole story. I can see a parallel with uh, Paul on the road to Damascus where he's struck blind and scales fall from his eyes and all of a sudden you see things totally different. Totally different. That's yeah. what Paul's story yeah. is. Absolutely. The thing about humility is, is it's not something that you can just conjure up and decide. I'm just going to be. I'm just going to be more humble. It's 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 totally an attitude of, of what you think, where you think you got whatever it is you possess. Yeah, I, I would say this: humility is something you have to cultivate in your life. And we've talked about you know the fact that the Bible instructs us to humble ourselves. It says that a lot. And we've been through and talked about the various ways you can humble yourself. But as Gary said, you can't just say, I'm going to try to be humble. It's something that ultimately you cultivate and it, it becomes who you are. In fact, I've been, after talking to the guy, we'll probably come back sometime soon and talk about humility. I've read a couple of interesting books recently, some new interesting insights that I may will come and share. Anybody else? You know, I was thinking about this, and I'm saying, I, I say this with all due respect to this person, but, you know, the person that's had the biggest impact on my life spiritually, the individual, is a guy by the name of John Riddle. Any of y'all know John? Any of you know John? John is, uh, if, you, if you spend any time with John, you'd say he's pretty ordinary. And I say that with you know, all due respect to him. He, I mean, he, he doesn't have a dynamic personality at all. Speaks in a monotone. He's a pretty ordinary guy, but the wisdom and teaching, the wisdom he possesses is unbelievable. It's a great treasure, and he dispenses it to the world. But you know what's interesting? We shouldn't find this offensive in any way because Jesus, the man, was quite ordinary. He didn't stand out at all. Now, how do we know this? Well, there's three things I want to share with you. First... Go back in the Old Testament to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Does anybody remember what Isaiah 53 is? It's probably the most famous chapter in the Old Testament, or one of the most famous to us as Christians. Because it's the... Yeah, it's the, yeah, it's the chapter on the suffering servant to come. The Messiah. Even though they didn't get it at the time. Yeah, because we're told he, he's pierced through for our transgressions. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Sonny, would you read those for us? Isaiah 53, 1 through 5. Who has, believed our, who has believed our message, and to who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his parents that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and he was not esteemed. Surely he took up 
for infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet, he, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Isn't this interesting? He, he, he grew up like a tender shoot, but he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. You know, I don't know about you, but if I was God and I was going to send my son, I'd make sure he really looked great, that he was impressive looking, that he would draw attention, to, people would be drawn to him by, the, by his looks and his personality. But this seems to say that's not the case. And then, this is significant, I think, and it's, I, I, I personally find it almost a little comical if you try to envision this. But when Jesus began his public ministry, do you know where he announces it? You might remember? In the temple of his hometown, in Nazareth. Let's look at it. Luke 4, real quick, Luke 4. Luke 4, 16 to 22. Jeff Grantham? Okay. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. 16 to what? 22. Mm -hmm. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Okay. All right, y'all got the picture here? here? Here's Jesus in the synagogue. And they read the scriptures. They pull out the scrolls and read them. And he reads from Isaiah. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And what are the, do y'all know what these, what he, he's reading, you know what this is? This is, basically Isaiah's talking about the coming Messiah. And so Jesus reads it, sits down, and kind of almost matter-of-factly says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your sight. I mean, and and you know he they 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 said they like you know they 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 appreciate what he what he was reading. I don't think they got it. And then they looked at each other and they said, "Who, who is this guy? Isn't is that that Joseph's son?" I mean, guys, he lived there all of his life, and they weren't even sure who he was. I get my point is he had not made a big splash in his own hometown. And as you keep reading, then they try to run him out of town because of these outlandish claims that he makes. 
Now, you might say, well, they didn't know who he was because it was such a big city. Nazareth was a podunk city. In fact, Steve Rowe yesterday shared <clears throat> how last year he went to the Holy Land and went to Nazareth. And he said, it's just a nothing. There's nothing to it. There's nothing there. And we know that Nazareth is a podunk city because of what we read in John chapter 1. So turn over to John chapter 1 real quick. And Philip has met, has seen Jesus and had an encounter with Christ. And go, to, go down to verse 45. And so Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also in the prophets wrote, It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So you see, I mean, Nazareth was just a little nothing city. There's no way the Messiah could come out of Nazareth. So clearly, guys, clearly, Jesus... Not only was ordinary, he might have been less than ordinary as the man. I want to share some words. Let me stop here. Comment on this? You know, I was looking at this map here in my Bible when you were doing that, and I thought, see, it shows Jerusalem, Judea, then above it, Samaria, then Galilee, and I thought, you know, he's always called the Galilee, and I thought, like what was what was the significance if you were a Galilean? It seems like a bumpkin. It, the, yeah, it was, and it was, it was. Galilee was more of a region. Nazareth was a town in Galilee, and this was the armpit of the world of the Roman Empire. It was, you know, it was just it, it was. Uh, and history tells us that Pilate hated being there. I mean, you know, he hated being there because it was such a low place to be. Anybody else? Richard, it, it just strikes me what you're saying about the pearl hidden in the field or the treasure. I mean, here's the Messiah right there in front of him announcing himself, and they can't see it. They can't see it, yeah. And I, I, I'm serious. I think part of it is, I mean, is, this, is he just this ordinary guy? Is that Joseph's son? Who is that guy? I want to, I want to read some words from... C.S. Lewis saw this so clearly, and <clears throat> I want to read some words from <clears throat> The Great Divorce. Um, and in the narrative, you have this young man who goes to heaven, and he has this guide that's guiding him through. And he's walking around with this guide, and suddenly, around the corner comes this enormous parade of people. This enormous entourage of people. And you see these young boys and girls dancing around this central figure. You <clears throat> can't quite see who this central figure is. And then there are men and women dancing around this same figure. And he finally gets a glimpse, and it's a woman, and she's beautiful. And she comes around the corner, and the guy, the guide who's narrating says, or the, the young man who's with the guide says he could hardly look at her. 
He says, the unbearable beauty of her face. She was just filled with light. And he asked his God, who is this woman? He says, well, it's someone you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith. And she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Ah, she is. She's one of the great ones. You've heard that fame in this country and fame on earth, though, are two quite different things. And he proceeds to tell her how Sarah Smith had a tremendous impact on all those she came into contact. And then the guide says, And now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into everybody else. But already there is joy enough in the little finger of such a great saint as yonder lady to awaken all the dead things of the universe into life. Lewis had a way of saying things. Then we learn who Sarah Smith was. The guide says, on earth she was a nobody. She lived at Golders Green, which is a nowhere little town. The guide says, she never got married. She never made any money. But she became someone of such enormous love and she changed so many people's lives because of the love and the joy and the peace in her. And then he says again, have you not heard that fame in heaven and fame on earth are two very, very different things. You see, Sarah Smith, guys, was a treasure in an ordinary field. And really, this is what God wants to do in each of our lives. Because what I find it so easy for men to think you know, God can't really use me to impact the world. Well, you know what? What I would say to you is what he wants to do is a work in each of our lives where there is a joy and where there is a peace, where there is an inner strength, where there is courage in our very being. That's what it means to have treasure in ordinariness. But you know what the problem is? Nobody want, no man I know wants to be considered ordinary. And the reasons most Christian men <clears throat> never experience this eternal, internally is because we get too focused on the externals of life. How do I look? What do people think of me? How successful am I in the world's eyes? You see, guys, we have, we have got to get over and away from the world's standards if we're truly going to be men of God. And as I was, 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 was preparing this and, and really kind of finishing this up, um, you know, it struck me like a thunderbolt, a verse. And it's a verse that I pray over my own life a good bit. And it's Galatians 1.10. Remember Galatians 1.10? For am I seeking the favor of men? Or am I seeking the favor of God? If I'm still trying to please men, I cannot be a bondservant of Christ. So what's it going to be? He's saying you can't do both. You cannot live your life trying to please God and trying to impress the world. 
And yet there's something within us, and I've thought about this, there's something that's natural in us. I think it's part of our depravity that we feel this great need to impress the world so that we feel like, you know, now I'm really somebody important. My life really matters. And God is saying, that's not what it's all about. C.S. Lewis was on target when he said, Have you not heard that fame in heaven and fame on earth are two very, very different things? Comments, questions? Okay, we will finish up next week by studying the parable of the pearl of great value. Uh, and it's dynamite. Uh, great little parable. And I think you'll, we'll, we'll look at also what does he mean in both parables where it says they go off and they sell everything to obtain either the treasure or that pearl. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, Founding Director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.